Uh, There are two readings this morning. First reading can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1191 and is from 1 Timothy. Instructions on worship. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The second reading is from Matthew and can be found on page 969 of the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 5. Salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder what it would be like to be born in a manger. Yeah, I wonder whatever happened to baby Jesus. He, he grew up. What? Wait. So you're saying that the baby Jesus Christmas story is the same as the adult walk on water Jesus? Yeah. Thanks, honey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, I just never really put the two concepts together. <laughs> Wonder what would have happened to that guy, huh? <laughs> Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed that a little bit. And I certainly did. So today our topic is Jesus and politics, which obviously is rather, rather good timing with the hustings here on Friday. It may or may not be a subject that you enjoy, um, but I think what we can all say is that right now it's a pretty important subject. Okay. Who would Jesus vote for? That's the question which... I've tried to answer. It's not an easy question to answer. Would he go for beard solidarity? Or would he find his mojo with Bojo? Would he get winsome with Swinson? Or would he actually be hanging out with someone we can't actually vote for down here? Okay, perhaps what he might say, though, is none of the above. I don't know if that's where you're at. But there's a serious question lying behind this. 
And as Christians, we have a vital, con- a vital contribution to make. We heard that passage, didn't we, about salt and light. And if we lose our saltiness, well, that is a very bad thing. But as Christians, we can actually model how we should be interacting with others in the political realm. And that's because of the, uh, the unity that we have with each other. As Christians, we are learning and, and doing rather well at in this church in terms of listening to each other, in terms of speaking truthfully, and also to work collaboratively together. We can take that attitude that we have as a church, that the Bible tells us about, and we can apply it to that political debate in the wider uh, domain. And if we do that, we have the opportunity to be the, we to, to uh, sell or to give that good news of Jesus. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, that famous passage in Isaiah 9, which we listen to at Christmas, tells us that the coming Messiah is the Prince of Peace. And I think we'd all agree that we need a bit more peace, a bit more unity, and a bit more gathering together and loving each other as a nation than we've uh, hitherto been uh, used to in recent times. Okay, so what am I going to say this morning? I've I've got three uh, little headings that can guide us. The first one is by far the biggest one. What does the Bible tell us? Because it tells us quite a lot. So we're going to go through that. Secondly, what does our history and our experience tell us? I'm going to talk about one historical figure and some other stories that I'm aware of, of people uh, I know well. And then uh, thirdly, what are the implications for us today? And I want to start with what I might call uh, first principles. Here they are. The first one is almost stating the obvious, actually, which is that God wants order. That's definitely what he wants. He's not looking for anarchy in our society or in any other. So maybe that is stating the obvious. But actually, when we look at what God actually said about order, we start to learn a little bit more. He looks to that order to uh, bring uh, righteousness, justice, and peace, all thoroughly biblical uh, principles, and to restrain and punish evil as well. That's clear from uh, many of the passages we could read, but I just want to uh, remind you from uh, the 1 Timothy series, uh, 1 Timothy passage, what that said. It said this, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And the other one uh, there, the one from Peter, says this, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So, what does God expect? He expects order. He expects a government that does that, that is, uh, is governing us, but actually also uh, governing in the interests of everyone. And the application that was given in that passage is that we need to pray. It's so important what happens in our government. We need to pray for them regularly. Okay, what about us, though, who are not called into uh, government, whether, whether central government or local government? What does God expect of us And I think, actually, we've been given a responsibility to educate ourselves on the issues of the day, the policies of the parties and those of our local candidates, so that we can make informed and prayerful decisions at elections, as I hope we will all do next week. 
But that isn't the only way in which we're to support good government. There are many other biblical commands as well, like, for example, pay your taxes, which I realize is an unpopular one, but it's there. And then going, I think, to uh, being more ambitious for what we can be. Uh, also, it's about the respect that we told our, politi- our politicians in. For example, Romans 13 says this. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give that full time to governing. Give everything, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Now, paying taxes is a reasonable command. It's hardly countercultural. But in this series, as we think about how we're called to be distinctive, there are a number of aspects. And clearly, submission to the authorities is part of that. And that doesn't just mean obeying the law. It means actually respect and honour, even to those people that we don't agree with. That's what we're being called to. And I think we have to say that in recent months, uh, that would be a breath of fresh air. But Jesus also had other things to say about this. It's not just about submission. Because if we look at the cryptic uh, answer to a question that Jesus uh, gave us uh, in the Gospels, we read this. He was asked about being paying taxes to Caesar, about submitting to the authorities. And he uh, said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. So we've got those things holding tension there, aren't we? It's that uh, authority of government that we are told to submit to. But we've also clearly here in what Jesus has said, we have a responsibility to discern what is good, what is right. And if actually what we discern is not good, then the greater uh, call on our lives is to uh, act and to uh, defend what we believe in. So Peter, having those sorts of teaching from those sorts of bits of teaching in mind, said this in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. So there, we're put in a place where sometimes we need to oppose governments when their actions or policies are clearly contrary to God's will. And again, that opposition is more effective the greater the number of people become part of that, come into parliament and uh, lobby and all the other things that we need to do. And that's why, in my experience, actually, I've, 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 and everything I've seen has suggested this, that actually there's a far greater number of Christians in parliament that we should, would I, rightly uh, expect if it was just going to be based on the proportion of Christians in our population. God calls people into politics. Quite a number of people I know have been drawn into that work to, to help there. And it, you know, it's an important service. It's an important thing to do. And actually, when we reflect back over the last 20 years, actually we've seen some of our major leaders clearly professing faith. Uh, Tony Blair, Theresa May, Tim Farron, reflecting those three main parties, clearly have said that this helps inform their beliefs. And more generally, Christians need to engage in the battle of ideas. For both atheists and archbishops would agree that no ideas are truly neutral. And so not engaging means that Christians are in danger of losing the battle for ideas, the battle of ideas. And when we do that, well, we've, we've lost the battle before we even begin. For Jesus certainly did engage in the battle of ideas in his context with his very visible concern for the poor and the frequent warnings for those who held political 
or authority, as we see in many places in the gospel. So here's an example, Luke chapter 11, where Jesus said this, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of your cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. He goes on, Give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Jesus has got a really powerful prophetic word there. And as you can imagine, the teachers and leaders of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, were not over-enamored of him when he did that. So Jesus quite clearly engaged in what we could call deeply political actions and words. And it seems fair to conclude that if justice and meeting the needs of the poor were concerns of Jesus then, well, surely they must remain so now. Concerns that were shared, obviously, with the Old Testament prophets and uh, all those in the Old Testament who spoke out about injustice in their land. And we get from some similar condemnation from James, the brother, probably the brother of Jesus, in his letter as well. So through the Old Testament prophets, through Jesus himself, and through James and some of the other epistle writers, what we see is that the belief that God cares about our government, not just what Christians do, but he cares about what everyone else does as well. Christians are using their resources uh, for the best uh, that they can. When we're in government, we try and uh, use uh, everything that we're given in the right way. But actually, Jesus is concerned not just by what we do, but about ethics, about fairness, in everything in our land. Okay, quick recap of what we've learned so far from the, uh, in what I've called first principles. We've learned God wants political order in society. We've learned that he cares about how rulers govern and wants us to pray and get involved. Third, he wants us to pay taxes, respect our leaders, but not at the expense of our obedience to God. And fourth, he wants us to engage in that battle of ideas, to be a prophetic voice for justice, compassion, and righteousness in our world, just as Jesus himself was. Okay, so we've looked at first principles. Let's move now on to our next section, which is the policy, and if you like, philosophy as well. This is all very interesting. I enjoyed reading all the passages that touch on this. And actually, this is what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that you will not be too dependent on anybody. And Titus 3 has similar uh, words, um, similar exhortations for us. Our, uh, Our people, he said, must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for, for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives, unproductive lives. Now put all this together and add it to other passages like Genesis 2, Ecclesiastes 5. What we have is a clear principle that actually work is good, that we've been made to work. We've been made to express ourselves through what we do. And it's a biblical mandate. We shouldn't be supporting anything that incentivizes unemployment. Rather, we are all called to use the gifts that we've got to work hard and then to be a blessing to others as we do so. But moving beyond, 
We can also argue that in an age in which many people overwork or suffer from stress-related illnesses, and all the surveys show that that's been getting worse in recent years, well, the biblical mandate to rest then is also so, so important. It's relevant to contemporary political and economic debate. It lay behind the factory laws that were introduced in the, in the 19th century to stop poorer people from overworking. It brought down uh, the average age of workers, and uh, we're now, we know, gone back up again. In fact, 1980, when many of us will have been alive, the number of hours that people worked on average is 10 hours less than what we do today. What is this saying? It's saying that overworking is bad. It's saying that the Sabbath is such an important principle for our social, for our spiritual, for our economic, and our emotional well-being. We can trust God that he knows it's for our good when we take a day, a week, or more off in order to be spiritually and in every other area being refreshed. Okay, so what else can we talk about? Well, good stewardship is clearly a principle as well uh, in the Bible. And uh, if you look at the parable of the talents, which many of us will know, that clearly uh, creates that or creates that sense that actually we are to be stewards by investing what would be given and allowing uh, good to come out of that. So the parable of the talents has got, um, has got relevance to the way that governments use their resources, but we need to include in that the environment. Now, I wasn't here because I was on sabbatical, but I know that Sophie led uh, all of us here through a eco-church series of four weeks. And actually, because of that, I think you'll agree with me that actually the environment is actually the biggest moral issue, the biggest sense of injustice that there is in the world. Because we in the first world, if we don't get our act together and be more uh, ethically sound, then the danger is in the first world, we're creating uh, conditions in the third world that really we affect them. In England, what happens with global warming? Well, we probably just go up a few degrees and quite like it. But when we look at what the consequences are for the poorest people in our world, we realize that they are really going to suffer. Allowing that to happen is actually injustice in our world today. Okay, so that's the environment. What else can we look at? Well, we look at peacemaking, peacemaking. Christians, as, as we've said, are called to be peacemakers, just as Jesus was the Prince of Peace. And what is that including? Well, I think it's including uh, promoting reconciliation between hate, uh, hating, hurting communities. Could be hating, could be hurting. Northern Ireland's an obvious example of that. But actually, we're called that all over the country and in our world. As Christians, we're called to be people of peace. And just as in Northern Ireland, Christians were a major uh, source of reconciliation in that place, which we still enjoy the benefits of now. And we need to do that in all the other areas, in our world, in our country, and in our families and our community, where people are falling out and they don't interact with each other in a positive, generous, tolerant way, but instead in a way that, that really brings hatred and anger. Now... I think we all know social media is part of that. There's something about the anonymity of people being able to write things that many, many people see, and yet no one knows who they are, and they don't suffer the consequences of that. But clearly, as Christians, we're called to be counter-cultural in this way. Okay, what else can we talk about? Well, there are moral and social issues as well. There's not time for me to go into this in any great depth. But actually, the principle 
that we're all made in the image of God is such a powerful one. When we really apply it into every area of our life, it's incredible. The consequences, the implications of being made in the image of God are huge. Okay, so what sort of things might that affect? Well, it could affect um, sexual issues like prostitution, sex education in schools. We've heard quite a bit about that recently. But also, we can see that it affects um, other things, other ideas, other uh, things that we need to campaign about uh, for marriage, for family values, and into some of those issues around abortion and sexuality as well. Okay, and finally then, we have a biblical basis for ensuring that the authority of the political rulers is carefully limited to their proper rights and duties. We all know, don't we, that corruption is rife. Many countries of the world, it's routine, it happens all the time. That is quite clearly not acceptable. The Bible makes clear that every king, every government, has to rule justly. They mustn't derive financial benefit to themselves. You see that in Deuteronomy 17. We see it actually exposed in our culture 10 years ago in the, uh, in the kind of... the Sorry. Um, yeah, in, in the, the basic corruption that, that we discovered was going on in terms of uh, expenses, uh, scandal in Parliament. We see that. So we're not above it, and actually God calls us to root out corruption and to encourage tolerance and generosity in everyone. Okay, well, we've had a, a good biblical overview there of all the principles that should affect us in our views in terms of politics and in terms of how we carry out ourselves. I want to move now then to uh, the history. I want to share one person with you that I'm sure you've heard of and then just share a couple of related stories in my own life. Okay, so the first person I want to talk to you about is William Wilberforce. What do we know about him? I don't know anything about his origins, but what I do know is he took on a very, very significant role in Parliament, fighting against slavery. His first major breakthrough was 1807, when an abolition bill, which had been attempted to go through many years and many times, finally came about. What a great moment that must have been. But that wasn't the end of the story. He continued to campaign on the issue of slavery, not so much happening here or what British people were doing, but in colonies all over the world. And then the, the sort of uh, the, the, the final glory that he had in his uh, career was in 1833, when just a few days before he died, he saw slavery everywhere opposed throughout the British colonies and anyone else with whom he had authority. He had devoted himself to that task, and just a few days before he, he died, he got to see the results of that. But that's not all William Wilberforce uh, did. Some of you might know he actually took on loads of issues as well. So let's just give you a few examples. Limiting the hours of children should work. Fighting for prison reforms. Being passionate about policing, education, healthcare, gambling. He appealed for amendments to the uh, poor law. And he also uh, got involved in terms of workhouses and how to improve the conditions there. Now, although Wilberforce enjoyed a very, very successful political career, he was a household name. So many good things were associated with him. Despite all of that, the, he put his many achievements, whenever he was asked, down to God's will, 
rather than his own merits. And that's what we need to do. We need to, we need to grasp the fact that, that um, be, becoming people who, who put others first, who care more about the needs of others than our own, that sort of servant leadership, that's what we're called to. And that's what Wilberforce did so powerfully in his time. Okay, I just want to fast forward a little bit just to um, events that happened maybe about 15 years ago to two of my friends. And uh, this is what they did back in their late 20s. They decided or felt prompted by God to start a campaign to uh, end uh, Cadbury's, not end Cadbury's, but end Cadbury's making chocolate that was not ethically sourced. They started off by basically hanging out in the offices in Birmingham, constantly asking for a meeting with the CEO And it took many visits before uh, they finally got one. They had a a campaign in the media as well. They got people to write lots of things uh, and send it. And then finally they got that meeting. And what the result of that was, was that Cadbury changed their policy to only using fair trade ingredients, at least in the British market. So that's an example of what uh, people can do. They weren't old. They had no invitation to go to Cadbury's. They didn't know any of the people in, in charge there. But God prompted them to go and do this. And actually, two people who are just quite canny in how they do it and how they tackle it can actually do so much. It's about strategically inviting or identifying uh, the people that really pull the strings in any one organization, appealing to their, their sense of morality. And so often, that's what can achieve change, much pow- more powerfully in many cases by, than partitions themselves. Okay, we need to get on. Let me just add that in the last 20 or 30 years, there have always also been some really amazing examples of Christians engaging politically in a way that has changed global injustice. You might have heard of uh, some of the campaigns, like the Jubilee Debt Campaign, the Make Poverty History Campaign. They sort of came about just before the the turn of the millennium. And actually, what they found there is that these Christian leaders initiating this actually have formed common ground with the many other people who aren't yet Christians, but who want to make a difference in our world. So as Christians, if we can find those things that others want to join in with, well, that's when our impact can be so much greater than doing stuff on our own. Okay, so that brings us to the final section that I want to just briefly Uh, talk about, which is what we can do. Okay, let's just move on if that's all right, Uh, Steve. Maybe that's the last one, I'm not sure. (laughs) Okay, that's the last one, never mind. Okay, what can we do? What can we get involved in? Well, we can also get involved in in campaigns. An organization like Tear Fund, we can actually uh, find out what campaigns they're holding and join in with it. We can get involved in Stop the Traffic, which is to do with slavery rather than cars, and we can uh, get involved in other things like the MICA challenge. There are so many things we can do to make a difference when we join in with stuff that's already happening. And also, if we want a little phrase, just to capture what we're to do, it's the last one on the screen there. Think globally. Think globally means you think about injustice. You think about the environment. You think about how the fact that the poorest uh, sections of global population actually have the greatest damage done by what the decisions that we make in the West. So we think globally, but we act locally 
and it can make a real difference to people's lives. Okay, so let's come into land. We've got an imminent general election coming up. We've got the hustings here on Friday. We've got the election the final, the Thursday after. What should we do? I think we should pray for all of the candidates. I think we should read up on what they're standing for. Read up on what drives them, what they want to change if they're elected. Let's come to that hustings on Friday. Let's ask some questions that actually reflect some of the priorities that God might have for our nation. And then let's vote. Vote in the way that we feel God is leading us to. And it's not actually what we vote that is sometimes the most important thing. It's how we vote, how we discuss, how as a nation and as Christians we tackle uh, that sense of hostility. We tackle that sense of hatred. And as Christians, we model collaborative working. We model, model servanthood, as Jesus did. We model love as a thing that breaks down barriers. And we try to make a real difference in our world. A lot of, a lot of things have been said. Let me just reduce it down to four words to help you remember what we thought about today. Number one, we need to pray for our rulers, our governments, national and local. Second, we need to obey, which isn't just paying our taxes, but it means respecting and honouring our leaders. We need to learn by finding out about the issues that are the most important ones so that we can give informed consent or challenge injustices. And finally, we need to yearn. Yearn for that better place where one day we will be with Jesus and we can seek to bring aspects of heaven into our world now. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to sing a song. The band are going to come up now as we begin our response in remembering that Jesus is the one